uh, as most of you know, I I have been speaking on. Uh, I started the last time I spoke speaking on Romans twelve, which we're calling the motivational gifts. Why don't you open up there with me, uh, and we'll 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 uh, take a look. So we'll read this this list again. You'll be sick of hearing it by the time we're done, but maybe you'll we'll all memorize them together. Uh, verse 4 of Romans 12, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And I'm going to read one more verse. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. I, uh, I had the opportunity to go to a, a publishing house one time, and they were doing a... Uh, a tour of, of, of the layout that they do for publishing. And it was a, a red, green, blue plate is how they did the composite for their color pictures. And so they were showing me these plates for, for they showed me the, the, the finished product, what the picture looked like. It looked like a perfectly normal picture. And then they showed me the three different plates, the red, the green, and the blue plate. And each of them by themselves looked absurd. Like it didn't look anything like the finished picture. But they showed me that when you layer those three colors on top of each other, the mixture of all those things makes one complete composite image that is like you recognize it. And my premise with these motivational gifts is that these are all, these seven gifts are like, they're like those plates. These are all, like, when you put all of these ministries together, the composite of them makes up something like the logos, something like the whole man, something like what we're all trying to be. And so so all of this, this whole analysis of, of these gifts in Romans 12 is a way of, of being able to pick out those different colors, be able to see people in the church and in myself and in you, uh, be able to see how this is adding to the composite that makes us all able to do the work of Christ as the body of Christ. So today we're going to jump into these these gifts and look at the very first one. Um, I struggle a little bit with whether I should go in order or not just because uh, when we did our test, none of us were prophets. And I thought maybe we should do something a little more relevant to the home crowd, but instead I decided we'd just go in order because... The church is big, and I'm sure that uh, even though there's not a lot of us that fit this description here, there are in the church broadly and in your life generally. Which brings me to another kind of personal controversy. Uh, as I've as I've meditated on this list, and again, I hope you all know I'm not saying this is the only way to look at this list of gifts. I think it's a functional way, but there's probably a lot of different facets that you can approach Romans 12 from. But as far as as far as I understand these things, um, there's a I've wrestled a little bit with whether or not these gifts, these seven gifts, are a part of humanity. 
And what I mean by that is that everybody has, not just Christians, but everybody has one of these motivations, that they're built into what it is to be a human. That sounds a little bit funny at first glance because, like, what is a, what is, you know, my unchristian neighbor, how does he display the gift of prophecy, the motivational gift of prophecy? And that's, that's really the, the heart of this is that these are, these are baked in motivations. They're how certain people see the world. So, so, um, back home, you know, we, we grew up in, in the Northwest and there's a lot of, uh, extreme environmentalists in the Northwest. Like they've latched on to this particular truth about the world around them. And that becomes their sole focus. It becomes the center of how they view everything around them. It's all in the lens of this particular truth that they hold near and dear. And I would argue that that's essentially the motivation of a prophet. You grab a hold of a truth and that becomes the lens and paradigm with which you look at the world. These people that have this motivational gift, they look at the world through their perspective of truth, what they think is true. So, again, that's debatable. I've had, you know, I've talked with different people about whether or not these are just in the church or in humanity. My own inclination is that they're in all people. So you can talk to people who are Christian or not Christian and find these marks of people who are servers, people who are exhorters, people who are givers, people who are mercy, that they're not particularly constrained that they're part of the created order of man. So think about it and you can weigh that for yourself. But as far as it's concerned today, let's look at at prophecy as it pertains to us in the church and why it should matter and why we start here. I, I titled this Prophecy Outsiders Within. There's an interesting dynamic with prophets Right, and I'm using the very, very big umbrella term prophets, people who are these truth-oriented, essential, essentially truth-oriented people. They're um, they're very often dissenters. If we look in the history of God's people, you know, you have all of all of the society of Israel running on one course, you know, they're following whatever the trajectory of their culture is at the time, you know, they're setting up terracotta idols in their backfields, or they're, they're, they're going away after idolatry here and there, and most of the people around, most of the people in that culture are going one direction, and there's these few unique people who are going the exact opposite way. And those people are used by God, they're very important f- for God and one of the essential functions, I think a lot of times we think of prophecy as foretelling the future, and there's certainly uh, room for that within this gift. It's certainly an important component of what prophecy means. But the bigger picture, the real purpose for a prophet is to call people back to faithfulness. And so there's something within the basic makeup of people with this motivation that isn't primarily concerned with culture and society. Now, if all of society were made up of these people, we'd live in a very chaotic world. It's fortunate for all of us, the masses, that everyone does not have this disposition. Um, It's kind of like salt. You don't want too much of this, or it ruins the meal. Like, it ruins the culture. If nobody can go along, if nobody cares what anybody thinks, if everybody's just going to tell it like they think it is, you end up with a disordered society. You can't make things work very well. But without enough of them, 
things fall into chaos as well. They fall into into disorder and 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 they 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 fall out of their purpose. So there's this kind of leavening agent of of the prophet motivation within especially God's people to to be the the standouters, the ones who love who like in in the is in in the the prophets of the Old Testament, they're the people who love Israel enough to tell the truth to Israel. And that's still true with the church today. We need people who love the church enough to not care what the church thinks about what they need to hear. And that's a delicate balance to walk for the people that have that gifting. So, how do we define prophecy? The most general, generic, (coughs) all-encompassing definition that I can give you for prophecy is to speak for God. That means a whole bunch of things. Uh, think of the prophets, the different people that kind of exemplify uh, the, the prophetic calling. You know, you have Moses is probably one of the pinnacle prophets, and he's the mediator. He's, the, he's speaking the covenant to God's people. That's, that's why he's kind of this archetypical prophet. You also have Abraham, who is not so much known for his specific messages, but for his, his living out of a prophetic message like we all still look at him as this emblem the father of the faith and it wasn't it wasn't so much the things that he said but the things that he did which left all of us now thousands of years later with him as our our kind of example this is how you live a faithful life so so you have Moses who's kind of this go between this intermediary the one who's speaking for God to people you have Abraham who's living a life that becomes a demonstration of what God wants to do that's a prophetic life and then you also I mean we could go on and on but you also just to set up some archetypes we also have like David who who finds himself so enraptured with the truth of God he kind of loses himself in worship he finds he kind of reaches past his own sensibilities, his own intellect, and his own wisdom, and taps into something of God through his through his meditation, devotion, and worship of the divine. And those are all kind of like that. That's kind of a picture of prophecy at its best. Those kind of components: someone who mediates truth for God to his fellow man, someone who's living a life who's so exemplary that they see God, what God is trying to do in the world, and someone who reaches past their own intellect through worship and meditation and devotion and touches something divine and and then ends up sharing that. This this general definition of speaking for God, you know, we can call this... um, It it speaks, right? So it's it's something that's outward-facing. This is not an internal disposition, the, the person with a motivation of prophecy, he, he needs to communicate. He has to discharge that. He, he feels the things that he thinks, or she, feels the things that she thinks are true to the, to the level that they have to come out. You know, Jeremiah says, I tried to shut up, but it was like fire in my bones. I couldn't keep my mouth closed. He has to, he has to let it out. It comes from within. And to some degree, this is how all people with a with a prophet motivation are. They they feel the things about truth so deeply that they come out of them. It's not um, it's not something that they can put under wraps very well. 
we should we should mention that one you know one of the major places where we see in the Bible this gift of prophecy is in the foretelling of the future, and I I I think that's important. When I was looking at um, some different analysis of of prophecy in throughout the Bible, you know, there's different phases of prophecy that people talk about, in, especially in academic circles. There's there's apocalyptic prophecy, you know, Daniel, you have revelations. Um, there's the passage that, that David wrote, which is very specifically for a specific audience. And within that realm, God does, God does speak to people um, in, in a predictive way. I'm gonna I'm gonna let off that for hopefully I'd like to get to looking at Corinthians, which we call the manifestation gifts. So you have motivation, manifestation, and ministry. Remember, those are First Corinthians. I mean Romans twelve, First Corinthians twelve, and Ephesians four. That's motivation, manifestation, and ministry. Those are the three places where we have spiritual gifting lists. What's interesting to me is that in all three of those, prophecy is mentioned. Not all of the gifts are mentioned in all three of them, but prophecy is one that has a role to fulfill in each of those lists. It's, it's a motivation and it's a manifestation. And that manifestation is more like seeing things that are not, you're, you shouldn't be able to see. Like think of Corinthians when it says the secrets of his heart are made manifest and he says God is in you of a truth. Like it has this, this, this immediate uh, value of seeing something that shouldn't, it's not perceptible to the human that, that's the manifestation of prophecy. There's where we also find this prediction of the future. And then the ministry of the prophet is... The, we, we know that the church was founded originally by prophets and teachers. Apostles, prophets, and teachers are the three main ways that the church starts from the apostles. And this, this role, this, this um, ministry of the prophet is very much like what Isaiah is talking about. This calling people to center, like getting people to get back into alignment with God. We're going the wrong way. We're doing the wrong things. This isn't the right way. That's a false teaching. This ministry belonged in the church and it was a place, sometimes it was itinerant, sometimes it was local, where there were people within the church who were known for keeping the church on track, for pointing out problems. Um, We'll probably look at it later, but you know, you have Revelations, uh, the, the the letter to the church of Ephesus. He says, uh, after he rebukes them for leaving their first love, he says, "But this you do: you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." And these prophetic ministers were responsible for keeping the church on the proper track and seeing the bridge out ahead and warning people, just like the Old Testament prophets. So there's kind of like in all of those categories. What it looks like is that there's a priority for this prophetic calling. I think it's small in number, but important in value. And, and what that means for all of us who don't have this motivation is that we should cultivate an ability to listen. Like, if you were to go back to Israel when they're out of the way, when they're pursuing idols or going to Egypt for help or whatever failure... How would you communicate, like, what would you want people to hear? Or if you were in that place, how would you cultivate an ability to hear? And this is why I think it's worth all of us considering this motivation, to recognize who these people are among us and to give them ear to speak about those things. Now, it's often the case, you know, with all of these gifts that they have 
all kinds of variables. You know, the maturity of the believer, the how, how much they're under the control of the Holy Spirit, their wisdom, their knowledge of the scriptures, all these things factor into how we use these gifts in our personal ministry and life. But in general, what we should be doing is we should be looking for people who have this kind of witness among us, the, the warners, the people who are standing a little bit outside saying, hey, that's a problem. That's not going to work. That's going to lead you to sin. That's going to send you the wrong way. The, the overwhelming example of history is that those kinds of people are usually ostracized and silenced. In the Old Testament narratives, they're often thrown into a jail cell somewhere and ignored, and at least they try to ignore them. And we don't want to do that. As the church, we want to esteem this role of the prophet, of the warners, of the people who are saying, bridge out ahead, don't go that way, there's a problem. At least give them room and an ear. Like the, 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 the classic definition of, of Israel as a pejorative in the Old Testament is stiff necks, they can't turn, they're stuck going the way they are, and stopped ears. They refuse to hear. And, and we should be evaluating ourselves corporately and individually. Do I have ears to hear? doesn't mean you've got to take every message that comes, but do you have an ear to hear from these people? Do we, do we want someone to speak to us when the bridge is out ahead? Do we want to create room in our life as a, as a community and as, as individuals where we have people that we listen to that we know, hey, I need to at least stop and consider. I need to stop and listen. And that's why this is such a critical function within the church. We need these people. We need people who are evaluating and looking across the church, across the community, and saying, that's a problem. Don't go that way. So this warning and admonishing and rebuking is, is all one, one domain of this, of this gift. But it's also, it also has another side to that coin. And that the prophets in the Old Testament, they also hold the role, not only of warning people that the, that, that the eternal bridge is out ahead, but also of comforting people that God's salvation is real and near. That, that it's not a... It's, um, for as much as we think of the doom and gloom of the prophetic message, when you read through the prophets... Well, uh, uh, my own experience, one summer I was working uh, on a farm... And I was, um, I was just walking around in fields like for a month. I was mouse baiting holes. I had a calf bottle with a big nipple on it, and I just filled it up with mouse bait. And I would walk around and literally put mouse bait in the holes. Did it for a whole month. So I'm out there in the fields, and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do with my time? Like I'm just wandering around. So I, um, I got myself Isaiah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel on audio and I listened to them over and over again throughout that that month I just put it on repeat and I was a young street preacher and I, what I really wanted was some fire in my bones I really wanted to be able to to you know tap into that prophetic spirit to figure out what motivated these guys and how they had so much resolve and so much strength and conviction in their words and how they kind of you know they spoke this fire that 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 challenged and rebuked everyone around them and I, I, maybe it was me. I'm sure that's a big part of it because the Bible's living. But, but what I ended up walking away after listening over and over again to the three major prophets was how much mercy and compassion gets extended through the mouths of the prophets. Because every time when you think it's hopeless, when he says, you know, 
when the prophet brings this woe and he says, I'm going to send the armies of the north and they're going to kill everybody. And whoever, whoever survives that, I'm going to send a pestilence. And whoever survives that, I'm going to send a famine. And whoever survives that, I'm going to send a plague. And, whoever, and it's like you get to the end of these woes and you're like, nobody's going to live through this thing. And every time, there's always this ray of hope that comes at the end. There's always this message, but I will not utterly destroy I will save, I will heal, I will help, I'll bring you back. And, and both of these are important parts of the prophetic message to the church is that here's problems and here's what a solution looks like. Here's what we should avoid and here's what God is doing. And that's the complete picture that's coming from the prophetic gifts within the church is both warning and comfort. So we don't want to forget that, especially if that's our motivation. We want to remember that because, because sometimes prophets themselves have the hardest trouble with that. The, this message is designed by God to elicit a response. He wants us to do something with this. We make space in the church and in our lives for people with these motivations to eli- so that we can do something with it. It's not just to hear. Um, okay, so going back to the idea that this is in all three of the, these lists, I think what that speaks to me is that God wants to highlight and prioritize truth. You know, the fact that this is at the front of every list, and, and in fact, in uh, let's just flip there. Um, do I want to do that now? Let me look real quick. Yeah, let's do that. Look at 1 Corinthians. This is this is again talking about these manifestations, but but it's a general enough concept that I think it's 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 worth looking at here. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, 12. No, no. Sorry. 14. 12 is that list, but he he goes on to describe what's happening with these gifts in in 14. Um, Conspicuously, after chapter 13, about love, he goes on to say, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries." But he that prophesies speaks unto, speaketh unto men to edification and to exhortation and comfort. This, this prioritization in all three of these lists on the gift of prophecy is because it's so outward focused. It looks out. It's not, a, it's not an internal compass. It's an external compass. It's for all of us to have some sense of bearing in the world around us. So God is using these people over and over again within the church, with the gospel, in the Old Testament, to, to be like the compass heading. Like, here's the way to go. Here's how to find, find the path. And that's a, that's a, it's an essential premise, right? It's, it's one of the main things that we as the church need. Um, 
it begs the question, how, how do we make the right space in our life or in our community for these giftings? The reason, the reason, um, the reason it's complicated is because the prophetic message, almost by definition, is an outlier. It's not the main way that everybody's thinking and going. And there's this tightrope walk that I think that that God is trying. Maybe that's the wrong way to say it. A balance that he wants us to find. I don't want it to be as impossible as a tightrope, but a balance that he wants us to find where we're, where there's a space for it. There's a space for the outlier, a space for the fringe, right? Someone on the edge that has a, an ear, a way to listen. And I think, I think for me what that means is that wisdom... Okay, here's, here's a couple of things we can do to cultivate this. Wisdom loves correction. They say, of, they say of, of the scientific method that it's trying to prove itself wrong. And, and I appreciate that. I think that, that's demonstrable. Like, to go through the scientific process is to try to, 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 to break the theory, to break the idea, to see if it holds water. And that's a valuable way to approach. But we can use that spiritually too. And I think think properly that that idea has its origin in the spiritual world of this notion of wisdom loves correction. It loves reproof. And cultivating within your life the ability to hear is one of the rarest virtues that I find. I don't know if that's true, but it's very rare. It's hard to want to hear correction. I don't want to. I don't want to listen to people telling me I'm wrong. I don't, I don't do well with it. And I don't think most people do. And, and if we stop and, and approach, approach correction from a different place where we see it as an opportunity to grow, we see it as an opportunity to be more correct, more healthy, more whole, rather than something that's trying to offend, attack, or, or dismantle us. To look at being challenged, especially with a truth premise. Someone says, hey, I think you're wrong about this. Instead of feeling like the immediate defense mechanism of you're judgmental, you don't understand, I'm in a different case, you don't know me, all this stuff. That's a really easy, that's the natural path. Like that's where you automatically just fall into. Without trying, you can create that construct. It's just as natural as breathing to set up all those walls and defenses. But instead of doing that, if we can cultivate this eagerness to hear, this this kind of scientific approach to our spiritual well-being, show me where I'm wrong. I, I would love, if anywhere that I can reveal a place where I'm wrong, I can be more right. That seems like such an easy premise, but we have all these things that get in the way of it. These people with these motivations are who God's given us to do that, to say, I want to hear. Tell me why you think that. Tell me, Timothy, you've been a a really neat example of that in my life. You, You seem to be someone who's been involved in my life that I've known over the years that wants to hear. Hey, tell me what you think. And I think that's such a wise disposition. It's such a good way to live your life. Show me what you think. I I want to hear. I want to hear what you think about this. 
this is what we need to do with these people in our life. And it doesn't, having this motivation doesn't make you more right than other people. It's just a motivation, right? It's just a way that you see the world. And, and there are certain attributes to that gifting, but it doesn't, it's not a blank check. It doesn't mean you're always right about everything. It just means that you're motivated by a certain way of thinking. But people that are motivated by that way of thinking are motivated that way because God wants to say something to us. So that's a, that's a way that I think we can cultivate some of this ability to hear. So now let's talk about these people. In, in all of these, uh, what I, what I want to do is I want to kind of draw a picture of how these people, how to recognize them. Who are the people with this gift? Am I one of the, am I, do I have this gift? Do you have this gift? Who around us does have this gift? Because in all these things, we want to be able to, if, if there's a particular response to each of these kinds of people, if they have a particular value, an asset to the church, then, then it kind of doesn't work if we don't know they're there. Like, these understandings, like the, the reason that this is all written out so we, is so that we can be looking for people that are this and that and that and that, so that we can recognize where to give them place and what they should be doing and how, how they should be working within us to create this wholeness. So when we look at these, each of these gifts, prophet, teacher, exhorter, ruler, mercy, giver, uh, I missed one, um, minister, when we look at all of those motivations, the, the way that I think of it is that <clears throat> this motivation is the essential why for a given person. Why do you think the way you do? Why do you see things the way you do? Why do you... Um, why do you interpret things the way that you do? Like, one of, the, one of the things that you can do if you're looking for what people's gifting is within this domain is, is to ask them questions. Like, how would you solve this problem? Or what do you think the biggest problem in the church is today? Or what do you think the biggest problem with people is today? Or, and then how would you fix that? And if you ask those kinds of questions, you kind of are pulling out, how does this person... So, so if you ask that question, what do you think the biggest problem in the church is? You ask that to, to Christians. And you'll ask one guy and he'll say, well, people are just... They're not taking the word of God seriously and they're full of sin and wickedness and iniquity and people just need to repent. You ask the next guy and he'll say, people just don't care about people. There's all this coldness and indifference and we don't spend enough time getting involved in each other's lives. Another person will say, we're missing all of our opportunity to serve the world around us. Like You can, you can ask questions in a way to, to get at somebody's root motivation. That's what this list is. These seven things are, are that kind of, <laughs> they're kind of that basic premise for how you look at the world and what you think the solutions are. So what is that for this, for this gift, for prophecy? Um... I want to, in each of these, uh, in each of these, I have a list of strengths and weaknesses, but before we get there, I want to try to, to, to highlight like a character that particularly exemplifies each of these attributes as we go through this list. And, and for the prophet motivation, the person that I want to highlight that, that seems to be very archetypical in his responses as a, as a prophet is Peter. 
So think about these kind of anecdotes that you know from the gospel account of Peter and, and, and see how this motivation is at the root of, of so many of the things that he's doing. Let's, let's, uh, this isn't mine, this is somebody else's, but let's go through a, a list of those things. So here's a list of traits for people with, with the motivational gift of, of prophecy. Um, prophets, they need to express themselves. They, 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 they need to, like we talked about already, they, have, they feel these things deep inside and they need to communicate them. So especially when matters of right or wrong are involved, uh, Peter speaks more than anybody else in, uh, among the apostles. He's the, if somebody's speaking, it's probably Peter. He's the one that's always out front. He's always got something. Uh, he's, prophets are not generally the sit and think about it and have to wait and develop my thoughts before I have anything to say. There's always something ready to come out of, of people with this motivation because they're always looking and analyzing and ready to say what's wrong and what's right. The problem with that is that um, they a couple of things for people with with this motivation, they're always ready to say what they think because they feel like it's an obligation. Like because it's truth oriented, right? Because my motive is what I think is true. It also is my obligation to be responsive to that. Like. If my ultimate motivation is truth, I don't judge myself to be true if I think something's true and I don't express it. So there, it's kind of like a, a circle of reason. Like people with this motivation, they tend towards these responses. They tend to be out front with the, what, the things they think. They tend to be very quick to make these declarations of that's right, that's wrong, because they judge themselves as unfaithful if they don't. But you can imagine all the problems that come along with that, too. Like this quickness to, to call people out before thinking things through. All of that can be a potential misuse of this motivation. Because, because the person wants to speak to these issues of right and wrong, um, they also have a propensity, a weakness, to not see that through to restoration. So people with a, a profit motivation are very quick to say, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that, or you've been doing this and it's wrong. But then they don't, they often fall short in bringing that back around to restitution, to saying, okay, well now how do we deal with that? If it's wrong, how do we make it right? And the relational part of that, of that call, the, the rest of that message where God wants to restore people People with a profit motivation, especially when they're immature, are not very good at. They're not very good at walking people through the steps to come to wholeness. They just want to be a banner, right? They just want to say, that's wrong or that's right. They're not very good at bringing about. And, and if they're wise, you know, they'll, and they know that about themselves, they'll bring people into their circle, into their, you know, into their ministry to help, help them do that well. Uh, prophets tend to make quick judgments about what they see and hear. Um, they're also usually the uh, same kind of thing. They're also usually the first to speak. Uh, but this also leads them to jumping to conclusions where they, 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 they appear hasty. 
prophets hate dishonesty. Um, it's one of the it, like they recoil from it. There's not an amb- there's no ambu- ambiguity. There's no such thing as a, a, a very few things like a white lie. It's either right or wrong, and there's n- there's no in between. They don't do gray very well. And that's an asset to the church to have somebody with a sensitive conscience that's willing to point things out. They react strongly to any form of of deception or dishonesty. And who is it that deals with Ananias and Sapphira? But Peter. Like, he's the first on the case. Like, no, that's not true. Like, there he is. This this can tend to make a misuse of, of people reacting harshly, especially to people who are in sin. When a prophet sees sin, he tends to denounce it so strongly that it can appear to others as overkill. After exposing sin, the prophet tends to expect immediate repentance regardless of whether his rebuke was given in love or was even fully accurate. His motive in signifying sin is to promote repentance. And that's, that's not always done in, in good ways. And this perpetuates the cycle of dismissing the prophet. It's kind of like, you know, it, it's on both sides of the equation. The culture generally doesn't want to hear from these people, but these people often communicate their, themselves in a way that doesn't make it easy for people to listen to them. So there's something to do on both sides of that equation. Uh, Prophets tend to cut off people. Um, They want to, if if you're not doing the right thing, then you kind of, you don't matter to them. They just dismiss and cut off and separate, and they do that very well. In in fact, too well. Uh, And it can create alienation in people who's, there's um, people that have this motivation uh, often have rocky relationships in their past. People that they're still on the outs with or groups of people. When we, when we do a spiritual assessment in the church, we always talk about how... Okay, there's a couple of things behind this. We're made up of... We're, we're kind of a de novo group of people, so most of the people that are here are either new converts or they're coming from another, another background. It's not a, we're not a multi-generational church. Nobody grew up in Followers of the Way. Cephas is the closest thing. So, like, we don't have a whole lot of people who grew up here and have a multi-generational experience with this church. And so, a lot of our people are coming from somewhere else. Well, we talk about that and we say, how are your relationships where you've come from? How, How did you leave the places that you left? How did you end up here? And are those relationships where you left still intact? And you can, in having those conversations, you can you can often deduce this this motivation. Well, uh, you know, they were whatever the case was. They didn't believe in non-resistance, so they had divorce or marriage, or whatever the case was. Whatever their thing that they happened to catch on to, it, it creates this firestorm, and it explodes in some explosive meeting, you know, where these guys stand up and call out the whole church and rebuke them with an open Bible and walk out the door, and never to see anybody again. And we ask because we want to know, because, hey, that's, that's great that you love truth that much and that you're willing to offend people for righteousness, but you also need to consider relationships. And, and for people that are in that place, we often want to say, hey, why don't we make some phone calls? Why don't we go back and revisit that and find more healthy ways to have those conversations? Because if it happened that way there, it's very likely going to happen that way again. So we want to visit these things. So those are... Those are uh, 
proclivities for people with these gifts. Uh, prophets are are generally as open about their own failures as they want other people to be. They they can tend to be very self-critical. And so when they when they find error in their life when they're convinced, they're hard to convince, but when they are they they come at it with a fury. And and what happens then is that that they expect other people to have the same instant fervor against something that's wrong. And just not everybody operates that way. Some people, it's a much longer, slower process to work through. Uh, how could this be? Why would it be? When when you have the motivation of a prophet and you're convinced that you know your church has been teaching you wrong in point A, B, or C for your whole life, you're just ready to burn the bridge. Like, I got to go. I have to follow this because I know it's in the Bible and God said it and I believe it and I'm going. But that doesn't, that, that's not everybody's response. And, and people with this motivation can become frustrated with people that don't call out their own immediate re- repentance like they have. Um, there's, also, there's also a problem with that, that, that people with the profit motivation can become very self-critical. Um, when they have failures they can send themselves into very deep, dark hole um, of uselessness and I'm no good and I'm a mess. There are other reasons people do that, but sometimes the profit motivation can put people in that place. It's interesting in that sense, um, when Peter denies denies Christ... um, the angel says, go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. Like Peter gets a special exception. Like don't forget, tell Peter specifically. Tell all the guys and tell Peter. Because remember, Peter's the one that's like, I'm done. I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to my old life. I can't, I can't do this. Like he's in a pit after that whole experience at the crucifixion and the, his betrayal. Like that, that almost undid him. So, so there's like a special consideration for Peter on both ends. Before the betrayal, Jesus himself mentions Peter and says, I've prayed for you. Your, Peter was a central link to the health and vitality of the early disciples. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus prayed specifically for Peter because he said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And after the betrayal, he gets a special note tell the disciples and Peter. So so I think that demonstrates the value how important these people are to keep around. That sensitivity that they have sends them pretty deep when they fall and and it can be I think that the devil doesn't like these people in our midst because they serve a very per, very uh, important function. Once people with this, once prophets are committed to a cause, they are all in. They, they, if they're if they're on board, they're all the way on board. Peter displays this all over the place. Uh, on, on the water, he sees Jesus walking, and he says, "Bid me come unto you." He's the only one on the whole boat. He's the only one. He says, "Well, if that's Jesus." then I want to be out there with him. And he's willing to step outside of the boat onto the water and walk with Christ. But it's also also at the Last Supper, right? 
No, you'd never wash my feet. I'll never let you wash my feet. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're none of mine. Okay, well, not my feet, my whole body. I want all in. Let's do it all. That's, that's, that's archetypical of these kinds of people. It's all or nothing. It, the tendency of that is that it can, it can make people with this motivation impulsive. And they kind of vacillate back and forth between extremes. They can kind of be on a roller coaster because of that tendency. Prophets are very loyal. Um, but primarily the truth. They'll cut off people uh, even when they're wrong. Think of, of Peter's dissimulation with the Jews. Like this controversy between him and Paul over eating with the Gentiles. Like Peter's picking sides. Even though he's wrong in that, it's still coming from his kind of ethos, the way he's thinking about the world, that he thinks that's his, that's his obligation to do. Um... One of the problems with that loyalty to truth is that people with a, people with this motivation often get involved in things that they shouldn't. What I mean by that is that sometimes it's not your responsibility. Um, when when this motivation isn't well developed and well controlled. People think it's their job to tell everybody everything that's right and wrong. Instead of appreciating and understanding that there are spheres of influence and authority that are also at work in the world to create order. And, and they're not very good at recognizing that. And if they think something's wrong, then they just got to tell everybody that walks by them. There's, no, there's, there's a, a low capacity to say there's, there's systems and structures in place like family authority and church authority that also address these needs and it's not I don't have to say everything that I think is right or wrong that can be a misuse prophets are eager to embrace suffering when it comes as a result of standing for the truth the the problem with that is it can it can can create both uh, tactlessness and bluntness it can also create a martyr complex like people that have this motivation, they want to say their truth so much that they're almost looking to be dismissed so that they can feel vindicated. That's a cycle that these people get into that's very unhealthy. Um, prophets are particularly astute at articulating and defining right and wrong. Um, it's interesting to me that Peter's the one that makes the Pentecostal address. Like, he becomes the mouthpiece for the apostles to communicate what all of his... Like, it's to Peter they say, uh, what then should we do? Like, he's the one that's articulating the message of, you all just killed Christ. Like, he's been prophesied, he lays out in that sermon the whole story of Israel's past and their prophets... And then the conclusion is, you all just messed up really bad. So he articulates that whole thing through his Pentecostal sermon. And it's, it's effective. <clears throat> um, he says in that sermon, Ye have taken Jesus and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. Okay, so that's... Uh, there's, there's actually 
quite a few more things that you can think of out of Peter's life um, that demonstrate this. But let me go over a, a, a list of strengths and weaknesses for you, um, and then we'll close. So the strengths of the prophetic motivation is that there's an essential truth orientation. The number one thing to them is what do I think is true? That's just how they think in, in the world. Prophets are not prone to the fear of man. I, I know some of these reiterations, but just for the sake of, of being complete. They're good at judging and assessing consistency. The, 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 the prophets in the Old Testament, one of their favorite things to, to harp on was a just balance. And that's a little bit lost on us because we don't have balances in our markets. But if you go to buy something, you would buy certain shek- a shekel was a weight. So you would buy a shekel's worth of whatever, of gold or eggs or meat or whatever. And, and um, conniving marketeers could trick their balance so that it wasn't a just balance, so that it didn't weigh properly. They would either manipulate the balance itself or they would mil- manipulate their weights. They would put on a shekel that wasn't really a shekel so that they got the better end of the deal. There's a lot of manipulation happening in the market, and it's one of the things that, that the prophets are pointing out several times in the Old Testament. And that seems a little bit odd. Like, really, we're worried about market economics. That's the most important thing in Israel when they're bowing down to idols and sacrificing children of Molech. Well, it is because truth isn't at the center of their world. Like, that became kind of a substitute, a stand-in for the idea of, of justice, of equity, of things being weighed properly, of being, being what they appear to be instead of being manipulated. And that essential component of truth is something that the prophets, they want a just balance. They want everything to be weighed out right. I want everything to be as it appears. Duplicity, conniving, uh, stealing, dishonesty, all these things, they, they just equal an unjust balance. They have a, a, a God-given sense of the danger of compromise. You know, we're, we're social animals and, and we... we partake in compromise all the time for the sake of living at peace in the world. Sometimes that's a really dangerous thing to do. Sometimes that's a compromise that the church especially should not make. And these people are particularly attuned and adept to warn us about a bad compromise. They're quick and sensitive to sin. They're advocates for action. They're usually willing to pay a price for conviction and they're willing to alter their course when they're shown that they're wrong. They're outspoken, they're usually confident, they have self-confidence, and they're confident about their understanding of the scriptures. They have a very low tolerance for hypocrisy, they're good at evaluating motives, they're not swayed by emotions. So, those are all good things about these people. But, let's also address some of the weaknesses. This motivation is not an excuse for being a jerk. Because sometimes these people are jerks. They they think that that because their motives, in from their perspective, are pure and right and truth oriented, that it doesn't matter how I say it. It doesn't matter if I care about your feelings. It doesn't matter if I address you properly. It doesn't matter if I even know you. Like you're obligated to listen to me because 
here's a here's a here's a root issue for all these things, not just profits. A really important reason to consider these things with some to take some time and meditate and figure out who these people are is because it really makes a different view of the world. And when when we don't address each other, recognizing that we see the world through different lenses, that we appreciate what's happening around us from very different perspectives and vantage points, it leads to so very much miscommunication, misunderstanding and and conflict. If you can understand what someone's motivation is, it's much easier to get at what they're trying to communicate, why and how, and how to reciprocate, how to speak. So, like, let's take this this hypothetical profit motivation person. He's used to kind of running roughshod because I know what's right and you're not listening to me and all this stuff. The way to approach that is to say, listen, brother, these things are important to you. Do you want people to hear them? Let's talk about how to how to communicate to people so that the message is received. So that you're not just being dismissed. So that your words hold value with people. That you can communicate. You're, you think that nobody's listening to you because they just don't love and esteem the truth like you do. But it's really the case that you just are really bad at talking to people. Like, let's learn how other people think. And you'll be able to then communicate that message across the barrier of these different motivations. It happens to be, and we'll talk about it later, that that these gifts are kind of oriented around opposites. Like you have mercy on one side of the spectrum and profit on the other. They're they're almost opposite motivations. Mercy people are all about mercy, all about caring for people, all about connection and human relationship and intimacy and and feelings and emotions. These are very very these are important to the mercy person the way that truth is and the 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 reciprocal negative is the same. Like profit people don't care how you feel. A lot of times mercy people don't care what the actual sum of the matter is. They just care are people being cared for people being loved or they feel connected and those two things you can see where in the middle of that the tension between those two things is balance is where we want the church to be we want to be able to we want to be able to be motivated by truth and care and compassion for people in their emotional state and their feelings and all these things relationships so we got to tie these things together if you follow one way or the other and part of all of this is recognizing our need for each other, these differences. That they're not, what will happen often is the, the people on that, those opposite ends of the spectrum end up devaluing each other. The way you see the world is wrong, not different, wrong. And that happens across that spectrum. And there's actually, I, I would say there's three sets of those opposites, but again, for another time. But, but it's important that we, that we get at understanding these motivations and how if I'm if I'm a prophet if I have that motivation in my life I want to be effective I want to be mature I want to be able to use that thing that's how we should all every one of us has one at least one of these motivations and most of us I think have more than one but we we probably have a primary motivation out of this list and it's not accidental it's not incidental it's who you are for the church and for God's kingdom. And understanding it and using it with wisdom, maturity, and being surrendered to the Holy Spirit and his direction is the goal that we all want, to be whole. 
in 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 the ministry gifts in Ephesians says till we all come to the perfect man. Like these all of these gifts are here among us to make us whole and we need each other in these ways. So <coughs> um so it's not an excuse to be a jerk, all that to say. If you if you have this motivation or you have people close to you that have this motivation, they need to learn how to do these things in a mature way. Another another weakness of, of the prophetic mindset is that you can get hyper-focused on the, the lowercase t truth that you happen to think is really important, whether that's economic solidarity or political freedom or a particular doctrine or whatever the case may be and it looms very large in your scope probably because it was neglected or you see people not responding to that particular truth and you can end up exchanging the capital T big truth for your own little private soapbox that's something that happens with these people and they need to be aware of it need to have a big spectrum of, of the truth that God's trying to communicate to the world it's interesting to me the relationship between David and Nathan, two prophets, and how much subterfuge Nathan has to go through to get a message through David's thick head. Like, he can't just go to David and say, you did wrong. There's not room for that. And this is often the case with people with this motivation is that it's very, very hard to communicate truth to them that they don't already accept. And people that have this motivation need to be careful to cultivate the same thing that they expect from the world around them, an ability to listen to people presenting truth to them. Um, Second Peter talks about false prophets, and that's, an, that's a whole other domain of this, um, that, that people can manipulate truth and become false prophets. Um, I think the main passages, if, if someone finds themselves in this category of a prophetic motivation, the two things, the two scriptures that they should memorize by heart are 1 Corinthians 13 and Revelations to the letter of the Ephesians. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about prophecy in specific. Though I know all mysteries... Uh, it's it's not it's not the supreme it's not the supreme truth, the capital T truth. God's doing something in the world that supersedes and transcends even these aspects of truth that we see and are legitimately very important. But the the capital T truth is who we are as people and how we represent and manifest God's desire and will for the world around us and. And if we, if we have 100% accuracy in our cutting of, of the lines, like we know this exactly is true and this exactly is true and this exactly is true, and we haven't manifested the love of God for the people around us, which is something that's hard for prophets to do sometimes, then we haven't actually done our job. We, ha- we aren't actually right, even though we find ourselves to be right. That's a very important lesson for people. And it's the same thing that's communicated in that letter to the Ephesian church in Revelations 2, that you've done all this stuff, 
You've, you've really worked well. You've, you've proven yourself over and over again. You've tried those which say they are apostles and are not. I know your works and I know your labor, but this, you've left your first love. Not lost, left. Like, you left Jesus behind when you were pursuing all these other things. You need to go back where, he, where you left him. You need to get back to the place where you put down Christ in the pursuit of your own agendas and remember what all this is for. Those are two important messages I'd have for these people. I should have ended on that, but I have a few more. There, they, um, the, there's a real propensity for pride with people with a profit motivation. If you always are looking and evaluating and making black and white decisions about what's right or wrong, you become very addicted to your own perspective of things. You think you're right because you're always talking about what's right. And that's a dangerous disposition. There's so much room for pride and arrogance in that, in that way of seeing the world that it ought to be a constant fear for someone with a profit motivation. Am I being proud? Am I listening? Am I, am I, am I capable of, of thinking outside of my own self? I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, it's hard until it's hard to see the what a what that composite picture is, the wholeness, uh, until you're looking at all of these, just like those plates, those red, green, and blue plates. This is one of those plates. It's one of those colors, and it's an incomplete one. It's a beautiful one. It's a necessary part to the whole picture, but it's just one of the colors that that makes up the body of Christ. So think about this uh, until I speak again and figure out who around you might, might fit into this category and start like, it'd be neat as we go through this list and we start talking about these things to kind of mark people around the church or in your life that fit within these domains and categories and start exploring those relationships and saying, trying to figure out how they're thinking about the world and why they think the way they do and learn to incorporate the value of that into your life in the church. All right, well, let's, let's, let's give thanks together. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we're glad for the opportunity to look into your scriptures, and we thank you for both the words and the examples that you give us in people's lives. We thank you especially for our brother Peter, who, who he showed us so many, very many things about ourselves, about, about human weakness and greatness, about the capacity of disciples of Jesus to be earnest and zealous and flawed and loved. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize the pieces of the body around us. Help us to see people the way that you see them and help us to value people around us the way that you value them. I pray for each of us, Father, that you would manifest our own gifts, the things that you're making in us. And we want to submit those things to you and surrender them to you. And Father, I pray for everyone here that we would all be found uh, a faithful servant, not one who buried his talent in the ground, but one who put it out into the world and used it to create. Pray, Father, that each of us would do that with the giftings that you've given us. I pray that you give us wisdom and insight to see those things for what they are in ourselves, first of all, and in one another, secondly. We, we love you and we praise you for your beautiful ways of creating your church and your people. In Jesus' name. 
Amen.